Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Did we see the best finish in NCAA tournament history? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 23 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. It is good to be back, and boy, oh boy, did we have quite the ending to the NCAA tournament. For a year where we had incredible parity coming into the tournament, many teams had an opportunity to win a national title, But the last two teams standing were two of the preseason favorites, and we got a national title game for the ages. A back-and-forth battle between North Carolina and Villanova that saw both teams have 10-point leads, both teams have momentum, both teams get hot and cold, and both teams have an opportunity to win down the stretch. First with North Carolina and Marcus Page hitting one of the most clutch three-point shots you'll ever see, a double, a triple clutch mid-air. A prayer was answered from three to tie the game up with 4.7 seconds left, but that was just enough time for Villanova and head coach Jay Wright, who called and ran the play that they normally run in that situation to perfection. Chris Jenkins being the hero, hitting the buzzer beater to put Villanova up 77-74 and give them their first national championship in 31 years. The game really had everything you could ask for, and it was quite the exclamation point to an amazing season, and it was really something that not many people might have expected as far as it being that close of a game. Just because both teams had been so dominant in the tournament, North Carolina had not won a game by fewer than 13 points. They were dominating the competition throughout the entire tournament. Villanova, on the other hand, entered the tournament shooting the best percentage, really, of recent memory that I can remember as far as what they were able to do shooting the basketball shooting close to 60% each and every game. It was just unbelievable for them to keep that up over the entire NCAA tournament, especially against some of the teams they had to face. They had to go through Miami, Kansas, Oklahoma, and then this North Carolina team, and they really didn't let up on the offensive end, along with playing some amazing defense to hold some of those pure offenses and great teams to some of their lowest scoring games of the season. Now, there's many different things to dive into as far as the national championship is concerned. I was unable to get on here last week to preview the national championship and the final four, so I don't necessarily want to take too much time going over the game since it is now becoming a memory, even though it just happened on Monday night. Fortunately, I was able to get a 
legendary guest, if you will, as far as college basketball is concerned. I'll be speaking with a gentleman that has seen and covered 44 national championships and final fours. So the man has seen some basketball, and that man is Dick Weiss, and he was nice enough to join me on the program. He spent more than 20 years writing for the New York Daily News. Before that, he was a writer for many, many years for the Philadelphia Daily News. He's had the opportunity to make a ton of connections and cover a ton of important college basketball games throughout his career, and he was kind enough to join me for some thoughts on his career in general and what he saw from his seat at the national championship and some of the things that came from that game as well. So rather than have me give any insights on what the game meant and some of the key components to it, Why not talk to a legend about what he was able to see, how this compares to some of the games he's covered in the past, what this means from Villanova, and some of the things we can expect to see in next year's 2017 NCAA tournament. He had a lot of great things to say, some amazing insights, and hopefully you guys can also learn a thing or two just like I was able to do. And without further ado, we'll get into that conversation. So I'm here with Dick Weiss, a sports columnist for for just about going on a half century now, member of the College Basketball Hall of Fame, and he's kind enough to join me for a couple minutes. Good, sir. How are you? Good, John. It's nice talking to you. I wanted to start here. I know you're a longtime national college sports writer, of course, for the New York Daily News after writing for the Philadelphia Daily News and were let go from them after some layoffs after more than 20 years on the beat. So I just wanted to start by asking how difficult that was for you to receive that phone call and receive that news and how you were really able to bounce back from that once that was all said and done. Well, I mean, it was it's always difficult at first but they, because they got rid of the beat almost altogether. Right. And that's sad. Uh, but within a month, I had five jobs. I was working for a website called Blue Star Media that sends me all over the world to cover U.S. international basketball and major events like the Final Four and the National Championship. I was I was working for George Radley at Nike doing some uh, columns for his website on a regular basis. I was working for the Big Ten Network. I was working for the American Conference working for Basketball Times, and for two of the last three years, I actually did the tournament for the Daily News. So I've been busy, and I've also found time to write two books. I wrote Dick Vitale's 75th Anniversary book. I wrote uh, a book on Teresa Grantz, who was the 1992 women's Olympic coach and was probably the greatest player of her generation when she played in Immaculata, and I'm in the process of writing a third book right now on the Olympics since the inclusion of NBA players in 92. And we, of course, so, remember yeah. that team, right? That's a pretty interesting book to get to write about. It's been it, it's been interesting, but I don't think I can do this book until the end of the 16 games. We, we, it started in 92, but, we, you know, it, it, U.S. basketball's had its ups and downs. I mean... Everybody thinks about 92 and 96. They think about 08 and 012. What they don't think about is how the U.S. almost lost to Lithuania in 2000, how they finished sixth in the World Championships in 2002, and 
how they were lucky to get a bronze medal in 2004 in Athens and That's how right. they had to almost redo their entire philosophy the next year with a national team concept, much like so many of the European teams and some of the South American teams have. I know you've been around the industry, obviously, for as many years as it's been, and I'm sure you remember well, years ago, you had a lot more opportunity to sit down with coaches, to sit down and players. The access was a lot better where you can kind of develop friendships with those guys and in turn really be able to put together some great stories and to tell their side of things without having to worry about what people have to worry about now when everybody kind of wants their news as quick as they could possibly get it. The access isn't as easy as it used to be, and some of the players and coaches aren't as open as they are with reporters, whether it's because they've been burned oh, in the past. Oh, I was lucky because I made, I met most of the coaches who have star power back when they were assistants. I met them at various camps and right. various uh, uh, places like Vegas where they were there watching kids play in the in travel team events, and uh, I met a lot of them in, in, at, at a young age. So we kind of came up the same way. So now all of these guys who have become huge successes and are Hall of Fame coaches are people I've known my whole life. So it hasn't really changed. I mean, for me, I was lucky because now I think that you have a lot more where people would try to buffer coaches from the media because they don't know what they're going to get with social media. Sure. It's all changed now. I mean, they never had Twitter. They never had Facebook. They never had, uh, they never had blogging back in the, in, in the seventies. And, uh, I think that you could build up a trust factor over a matter of time. If you were with coaches, my, my whole deal with coaches was always been, I never caught coaches over dinner. I never caught coaches in a bar. I used tape recorder. When the red light is on, everything is on the record. When the red light is off, everything is off the record. It's the best way to do business. If you don't do it, then, 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 then coaches will always hold it against you. And if you do have a tape recorder, you can always prove what they said. Has it been easy for you to keep up with that and adapt and get acclimated to the newer world of social media where you had to get a Twitter uh, actually, and Facebook? I tweet, a lot. I tweet a lot. Now, I think I've learned uh, it, it, it. a lot of people couldn't do it. And a lot of people that I grew up with are out of business, and most people who are my age are not working at all. Right. They've either let go, they've either retired, or they have given up. Um, they, they they've given up the the beat of the responsibilities. It's when I go to press boxes half the time now. I know less people than ever before. I went to uh, national semifinals in Lauderdale. I think I knew ten people in the press box. Uh, I you you know the national championship was another thing. I must have known fifty or sixty, but I used to know a hundred everywhere I went. And now I think that newspapers are doing less traveling. They're spending a lot less time on sports that are that don't have a professional tie-in or are nuts and bolts uh, for their section. And uh, uh, so you have papers that go one way or the other. They either are very locally oriented and concentrate in the high schools and try to build the readership that way. Or in the big cities, they stick to professional sports because they feel that they get the most hits. 
which I think is also another factor as far as stories are concerned because these players and coaches don't necessarily recognize people that might be asking questions that they're not really comfortable with answering and they may not give uh, a great think, answer. Yeah, I think that happens a lot. I think, I think a lot of coaches do not know the people they're talking to anymore and they used to. But you used to have people where the business was a late calling. Now it's not so much that way. Right. So getting into the national championship games, plural, because we, before we get into this previous one, I wanted to ask you before that, what some of your most memorable tournament games have been throughout all the years that you've been able to cover the tournament. I believe this was your 44th. So you've been around for a little while. And I just wanted to see if there's a couple games that stick out to you, whether that's title games or final four games or any games in particular that were really wow moments. The ones that uh, really stick out to me in national championships all occurred in the early eighties. I think Carolina, uh, Georgetown, Patrick Ewing was a freshman, and Michael Jordan was a freshman, and Jordan won the game with a with, with a baseline jump with 19 seconds to play in a one-point situation. Then uh, two years later, Carolina State beat Houston and Ficeland at Jammer 54-52 in a game that they probably should have never won, but found a way to win by slowing Houston down, forcing them to shoot three throws. They won on an air ball dunk by Lorenzo Charles. And then the 85 game with Villanova and, and Georgetown where Villanova played the perfect game. They shot 78 for the game and shot 94 the second half and beat an almost unbeatable Georgetown team. This this year's game right now, probably the most dramatic finish I have watched ever because there were two bang-bang shots at the end. Normally, you see people make shots at the end. The late in the Kentucky game comes to mind in 92 in the regional finals in Philadelphia. But this was a game where Marcus Page makes an off-balance three to tie the game at, at, at 74, and it looks like it's going to go overtime and fall over runs a play that is run all the time in practice gets an open shot for Jenkins who just drains it as Isaiah Hicks is running at him and gets nothing but net going for the wins at the buzzer. Maybe because I've known Jay for 30 years, maybe because I never thought I would see another big five team win a national championship. It really played huge in my mind, but it was a sensational finish, and most people would tell you it probably is as dramatic a finish as uh, they can recall. And you know, most people have not done 44 Final Fours, but of the games that they've watched, most people would say it's probably the most uh, dramatic finish they've seen. Yeah, you had a pretty great article about that game, which I'll attach into the show notes so people can read it if they haven't already. And in that play in particular, Jay has mentioned in interviews that that's actually something that they practice. He has a play for zero to four seconds, four to eight, like most coaches do. But this is something that they go over. And what's funny about that play is Jenkins is actually the fourth option. And he's the guy that they don't necessarily expect to have make that type of shot, but what did you see as far as how they were able to execute that? And- well, I, I, I think Callan made a terrible mistake. I think if you deny Arch 
Diaco, if you deny Ryan Ball off the inbounds pass, that play never materialized in right. that overtime because he is the guy who is a facilitator, the creator, once uh, O'Shea sets the high screen. Uh, I'm not sure. I think he wanted to shoot the ball. And then he heard uh, Chris Jenkins yelling in his ear. And, you know, Ryan is one of the great winners ever to play at Villanova, and he had enough confidence in his teammate to get him the ball for a really good look at the basket. Jenkins has got the best stroke at Villanova, and he certainly has the best range on the three. I think once he learned how to play with that new body of his, and when he got to Villanova, he weighed 280 pounds. Right. He's playing 230 now, and uh, it took him a while to adjust how to play, but he he has become a major factor in their program in postseason. Their whole team got better uh, during the course of postseason. I mean, and Jenkins in particular, the irony of that whole situation is he was on the verge of fouling out. You know, I mean, he's too early at four late. You have to make some decisions. Both he and Bridges do at four, and both of them, they lose either one of them. It becomes an issue down the stretch. Right. I think what's also interesting is that the Marcus Page three-pointer that you mentioned now becomes a mere memory because of what happened 4.7 seconds later. Based on how the game was going, do you think that if Villanova was unable to score and UNC rode that momentum that in overtime they might have had a really good chance to win that game? I think I think, you, I think UNC probably would have won the game in overtime. I think Villanova was exhausted. I think they played their hearts out. I think to, to let a 10-point lead dissipate and, and then lose a six-point lead in the final 131 really would have affected their ability to play at the highest level in overtime. They, I mean, they had one big play left in them. I mean, it was going to be a last possession situation, and they made the most of it. Even Roy Williams said that in the postgame. There are 75 possessions in a basketball game going over got the last. Going into the first half and then into halftime, one of the plays, or two plays, I should say, that people really seem to think were a momentum swing was UNC, of course, shooting lights out the whole first half from three, and and they really were able to build that big lead, and it looked like they were going to take control at the end of the half, but Villanova comes up with a big defensive stop. Then they come down and score and have that four-point swing, and that really may have made a difference because they go down five instead of going down nine. How much of an impact do you think that had as far as the swing going into halftime? You never want to see a team get too far ahead, particularly, and you never want to see a team go into the locker room with a huge momentum. I mean, going over open the second half with a 22-12 swing. Right. They made up the difference very, very quickly, but... uh, Carolina surprised me in this respect. In Saturday's game, in their semifinal game against Syracuse, they missed the first 11 threes. Right. They 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 looked like they were never going to sit three there for a while in the first half. They had eight threes in the first half. Is that right? Eight, eight for 11, seven for 10. Whenever Villanova has lost games this year, they've usually lost them to teams that have gotten great backcourt play. Oklahoma, Virginia, uh, Providence with Dunn, uh, 
behavior with Sumter, uh, Senior Hall with Whitehead, uh, and Hill Burry looked like he was going to bury them by them by himself. They had done a decent job on with Page early, but Burry was on fire, and uh, he. I don't think that they had him as a game changer as play in in the scouting report, and I think that he almost changed the entire way the game was played with this shooting. I think he was going to be the guy that you look back on if UNC was to win, where you say, if he doesn't have a first half like that, he, yeah, he basically totally changed the game for them. But on that same That's token, totally. the, the defense that Villanova was able to play, I mean, North Carolina came into this game, hadn't lost a game in the tournament by fewer than 13 points. They were blowing everybody out. But here's a Villanova team that held their bench for starters to just six points. They really seem to be able to control the post game and, and not allow too many people to get going and contain their stars. How do you think Villanova was able to really cool off the Tar Heels and end up really cracking down on defense when it mattered the most? Well, it, it, it's funny. I mean, at the start of the season, I think the weakest part of Villanova's game was their defense. I think that Jay really worked on that hard. I think that they. And they were they showed the ability to play multiple defenses. I didn't think they could play zone. They played some zone against Kansas, uh, played some zone in the Final Four. They also did a very good job taking C players out of every game that they played. I mean, Utah, Rodriguez, Ellis, Held, and and for the most part, Bryce Johnson. I mean, so they really. Did a good job zeroing in. They 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 played swarming defense. They played three quarter court pressure to slow the, the 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 tempo down. They never really let teams go overboard. I mean, when Michigan State played middle this year, no one expected middle to get ninety. But Villanova really was able to slow down the key key teams, particularly from the Big Eight. I mean, the Big Eight they love to run. I mean. And Kansas gets uh, uh, 59 in a regional final, and uh, they and and Oklahoma gets 51. I mean that to me that's pretty impressive. I mean their defense kept them alive in every game that they played and set the tone in some of them. I think you could argue that that's one of the major storylines for this team is if you look at it, it seems like they almost had the hardest road to get to the championship because of who they had to go through. You had Jim Laranega, of course, in the Miami game in the Sweet 16. Then they have to go up against the number one seed in Kansas, follow that up against arguably one of the hottest players in basketball and Buddy Heald and win by the largest margin in tournament history by 44 points and basically just keeping him intact while also shooting close to 60% for basically the entire tournament. How do you think they were able to stay so dominant and really keep that up throughout the entire tournament and into the championship game? I think Jay did a really good job keeping his team focused. I think you really had them on lockdown uh, because I think you realize that this team had a chance need knew that the chances that schools like going over don't come along very often. Not like this. Uh, I was stunned at how well they shot the ball for the course of the tournament. They shot 48 uh, during the season, but they shot 58.5 uh, over the six games. 
in a game where they shot 71 which uh, against Oklahoma, which is the second highest shooting percentage of anyone um, uh, in Final Four history, to uh, second only to going over 78% in 85. Uh, I thought that I had been to the 2011 uh, Final Four when the team shot the ball so poorly. Uh, now they, I mean, Butler shot 18 in the final. Kentucky shot 30 against UConn in the semifinals. And frankly, they did some things to change that. They turned up the lights in the end zone, which gave it a little bit better shooting backdrop. Uh, the Villanova came in and they just shot lights out both games. I mean, they really forced you to match them uh, offensively. And uh, I don't know that a lot of teams expected that to, to be the case. And Villanova had really struggled with Carolina in the tournament. I mean, in three different occasions, they had been knocked out of the tournament by a Carolina team that went on to win the championship in right. 1982, 2005, and 2009. And you mentioned on Twitter and, and in this conversation, you never thought you would see another Big Five team win the championship. And I just wanted to get some of your thoughts on Jay Wright. I know you've known him for a very long time from, from covering for the Philadelphia Daily News and, and the other things you've been able to do with the tournament. The 31-year drought, the second longest in Division One history. People have been on him the past couple years for their early exits in the tournament. And what was great to see, of course, after the buzzer beater was hit, just his reaction, how calm he was after the game, all business. I'm sure inside he was screaming incredibly loud, but just the way he carried himself. How important do you think this was for him? And what was it like for you to be able to watch him get over the hump in such a big way like this, both for him and for the I mean, Villanova? I mean, program? obviously I was happy. I was happy for Philadelphia basketball. Right. Uh, but he was focused the entire tournament. And if you notice, I think his team reflected his intellect and his poise. Right. You never saw them. Like the Carolina kids were jawing at the officials at times during the game. You never saw a Philadelphia player. You never saw you never saw any of them get up and come anywhere close to a technical foul by saying they they were very reflective of their coaches. Uh, personality, drive, and his focus. Um, you know, when he got here in 2009, I think he was just happy to be there. I think that they had never experienced anything like this. I think he was particularly um, noticeable in the way that they practiced before their first game against Carolina. Uh, they got there and they thought they could practice after the open practice. You can't do that. It's just you're out of the hotel for too long. They end up having to go 45 minutes through traffic to get to high school. They're going to practice. And they end up being out of the hotel for seven hours a day before a huge game. They had no legs left. Now, they probably don't beat Carolina in 2009, not with, not with the way Ellington and Green and Hansborough were playing. Uh, and I think that they probably, and a lot of people think they shot their wad when they uh, completely shut down uh, Duke and UCLA defensively and came up with the right stops against Pitt down the stretch. And a game where Scotty Reynolds actually made a big shot, something that very rarely happened in the Philadelphia College Festival at the end of the game. So now they've had two huge shots. Reynolds shot to get him to a Final Four. 
just before the buzzer against Pitt. Now Jenkins shot uh, for the game winner. I mean, the people like that end up getting etched in immortality at a small school where the big sport is basketball. Now, I know one of the happiest fans in attendance. It was funny, on the opposite side of the coin, you had Michael Jordan in attendance, of course, having to watch that shot and, right. and relive that, his glory days of making a shot like that, but then seeing one go against him. But, of course, Coach Massimino being in the crowd and what he was able to do with that Villanova program back when it was really the glory days of not only the tournament but of college basketball with all the great players and how great the Big East was. I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to him about it, but how do you think he feels for this? And again, Jay Wright now going into that upper echelon with being able to do something that Coach Massimino was also able to do in his time at Villanova. Well, Raleigh should feel very grateful, Jay, because he put him back in the fold. When Raleigh left the school to go in U- to UNLV, he had alienated almost everyone on campus and really left uh, on a negative tone. And when Jay got the job, he brought him back into the fold and brought that whole and made that whole '85 team in. Uh, magical once again. I mean, uh, uh, Rowley was there. I think that Rowley feels he was Jay's mentor. Jay was uh, assistant with him from 87, went with him to Vegas and got the Hoster job. Uh, never really lost touch with Rowley after he got the Dawn Over job. I know Rowley was very happy that he got the job. He actually went to NCAA games with Hoster when Jay was there. Uh, and I think it, you know, there was some question as to whether he was even going to be at the Final Four because he missed the semifinals. His wife had been sick and he was still in Florida, but he found his way to uh, the finals with Mike Fratella. I saw him both before the game. I saw Rolly after the game. I said, geez, they're now seeing two miracles of going over. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty amazing. And uh, I think he feels really but I think he looks at Jay as more of a son, and I think they sees a lot of his legacy in Jay's coaching. I think Jay has become a very good coach. I didn't always know if he was a great bench coach, but I think uh, the, this season and the regular season the last two years have solidified that. A lot of people look at 14 and say, look, they didn't get to the second weekend. Well, they lost to the national champion. Right. Connecticut uh, in the second round game. Uh, they did not play particularly well offensively in the loss. Uh, in 15 state, state was just too big, too, too, too strong inside. And, 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 and then they didn't have hit a three the entire game. I mean, in fact, I think they only had two players at threes the entire game, and they based so much of their offense on that. This year, the team learned how to win in multiple ways because of Sheffield once that healthy really became an important cog in the wheel. It's great. He was able to get noticed, and he definitely solidified himself as one of the best in college basketball. And I know now there's been some rumors that the Phoenix Suns are going to come calling for Jay to see if he might want to take their open position. Do you think he's probably going to plan and stay in Villanova a little bit longer and keep continuing? You know, to I, 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 I think he loves Villanova. I really do. I think it's very unusual. I mean, look, 
they're preseason number two next year. Don't always have to come up with money, obviously. Right. But if they want, they can keep them. If they let them go, there'll be a lot of unhappy campers among the uh, alums. But he turned down he turned down Denver last year. He's turned down thirty jobs. He turned down Kentucky. He turned down the Sixers uh, when Eddie Stavansky was the general manager yep. in two thousand seven. I mean, he's kind of established himself as a coach who can win, he's going to have a really good team next year. I think that he, I think that there'll be jobs open for him whenever he wants them. He likes living in the Philadelphia market. I do believe you now his daughter is a senior next year at Episcopal. I think that his family likes living in the area. Their families uh, are from from there. Patty, his wife, is from South Jersey, and Jay is from Bucks County. So they have most of their relatives here. And I think it's special when you do something for a, 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 a local school. There's nothing like having a local guy win a national championship. Right. I mean, Ryan will probably be a beloved figure at going over the rest of his life because he's a local kid who stepped up and made all the big plays and ended up being the MVP for the team. I mean, this isn't... I mean, I think, you know, the, the Big Five history uh, until the schools folded the idea of Planet the Plus was always to win with local kids. And local kids tended to stay home a lot more. One of those great early teams in the 60s were almost all local kids and kids from Washington, D.C. Uh, it changed a little bit in 71 when they had Porter. It changed a lot in 85. But anytime you get a local kid who becomes a star, it makes a difference because Philadelphia loves its own. And of course, the best way to get new kids is to win. So I think they'll be okay next well, year. Well, they've already got mentioned. a kid coming in next year, Amari Spellman, right. who is going to be a difference maker at center. Uh, they have two kids sitting out, I think, can help them. And they brought in a big kid from Hershey, who I think eventually will be a player. Uh, and they're going to be involved with, I'm sure they'll be involved with Lonnie Walker from, from Reading. I'm sure they'll be involved with a big kid bomber from Westtown now that they won a national championship. I mean, things change. When you win the whole thing, suddenly people take your calls. Absolutely. And real quick, I wanted to, of course, go to the other locker room because we saw the emotions from Roy Williams after the game and his post-game interviews from the players as well. They were very composed in a way and said all the right things and answered all the questions, which is something that you like to see, and it's impressive for such young kids to be able to do that after such a heartbreaking loss. What was the atmosphere like in that opposing locker room, and how impressed were you with the way they kind of handled themselves after the loss like that? You know, Carolina's got pretty classy kids. Look, I know they're under investigation for something that happened long before these kids were in school, but they traditionally have kids who uh, who who are, who are pretty class uh, or class acts. And Roy was a little bit belligerent with the media because they kept pressing on one two things. When, right. When you better retire. What about what about the uh, uh, the scandal? I mean, you know, he began. It, he had a difficult weekend. Really did ha- had some. Periods of 
being short-tempered uh, during his interviews, but he was gracious. He and Jay are friends. I think he respected the fact that in 205, when going over lost in a controversial play, uh, Kane never made a big deal out of it. I think Roy has enough class. He didn't want to take away from Jay's joy. Look, he came down to one shot. He couldn't go any either way. Right. I mean, I mean, you had two teams who were playing the best uh, at the end of the season, played for the national championship. Villanova had a much harder road to get there. If you take a look at the teams that Carolina had to beat, they they really didn't have that hard a road because the Eastern Regional kind of blew up. They ended up getting Syracuse a tenth seed uh, in the national semifinals, but. Uh, um, they were they were a very good team. They had six things that you could play at an NCAA semifinal game and could all contribute. They had two guards who were playing at a, at a very high level after not only shooting the ball that well during the regular season. I mean, they were they were they were a roll too. I mean, and they certainly deserved to be in the final and. Uh, it certainly made for a dramatic finish. I mean, nor I was starting to get concerned because anytime you have two semifinals that lack drama, you wonder what if the final will ever can ever live up to hype. Right. This game actually did. It's fitting because entering this tournament, everyone was, of course, talking about the parity that was with these teams and who was going to win. And there were so many options. One through 20 could have easily won the tournament. And yet we end up with two of the preseason favorites in one of the most memorable games that we'll probably ever see. And I know it is incredibly early, but you would be, of course, the man to speak to about this, is if we look ahead to 2017, I have to give some props as a Duke fan to the early rumblings that they might enter next season as one of the early favorites from what they've been able to I get. Will be the, I think Duke will be the early favorite. They're going to have Emil Jefferson back. If Harry Dallas is healthy, they have picked up players who can fill positions. Frank Jackson can fill the point guard position. Uh, Jason Tatum and and Giles are both potential starters. Jefferson will be healthy. Grayson Allen announced today he was coming back to school. So the only player they lose is Ingram. I mean, most people think that they might well be preseason number one next year. Well, we won't have a Plumley now for the first time in, I believe, eight years. So that's going to get a little bit of getting used that's to. That's right. There'll probably be a little bit. I mean, look, he had, he had his moments. Since he actually became a much better player he than did. I would have, have guessed. But these kids, these USA basketball kids, two years ago, three of them won a national championship for, for Mike before they all went in the first round of the draft. I mean. And now they got uh, three more who are all going to play the Hoop Summit Sunday in Portland. Well, two more. I mean, Giles is still hurt. Um, you know, and I still do have some concerns as to his health because he's been hurt two out of three years in high school. But I was also in Dubai to see him play in the 17 and under games. And I saw him play in the 18 and unders out in Colorado Springs. He is the best talent at his age level for an American player. He's that's, a that's good to hear. rebounder, and he played a huge role in uh, the 1900s at Crete when he stepped up two years. I mean, he was 17 playing at 19, and he had played a huge role 
on that team when they beat Croatia in the finals to win that gold. Now to wrap up, I know you're you're pushing 70 now and you're still going the same pace as you have been for the past 50 or so years. And I know you've mentioned in the past you don't plan on well, writing let's hope, a... let's hope you're not going to ask me about retirement. <laughs> no, absolutely not. My question was, looking back on all the things that you've been able to do with 44 now national championships and hopefully many more to come, just some of the things that you're most proud of and that you hope people will remember you for when you take uh, a look back this, on everything. You just hope that people remember that I, I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> I did my home and that I was objective when I dealt with people and that I never crossed the line with them in terms of getting one story because, you you know, it's the person who gets the one story, they miss ten others. Now, what are some of the things you have coming up on the fire? I know you mentioned you're working on that book, but as far uh, as other things. Book. I'm going to Portland tomorrow uh, because I want to see DeAndre Ayton play uh, for the international team on Saturday. Um, I'm going to uh, – I'll, I'll probably go to the, the draft combine in Chicago. I'm going to uh, Saratos in Spain to see the 1700 – and under world championship uh, at the end of uh, July. And then uh, it's almost football season. I, I'm doing less football now, concentrating on more basketball. But uh, uh, I, there's a couple football games I want to see early in the season. I'm intrigued to see Houston and Oklahoma in that first game of the year down at Reliant Stadium because I think Houston is an exceptional team that could have very easily gone unbeaten. And this year, if they beat Oklahoma, they could end up being in the conversation for uh, a national semifinal. I think, I think they're that good. And they don't come from a, a Power 5 conference. I'm always interested when the little guy has a chance. It's the best I mean, story to write about, isn't it? It's always the best story to write about. So it's the underdog mentality and the little, uh, the little, the, the, the little team that no one thinks can do it. I mean, you know, it, I found it interesting this year. I mean, when you listen to ESPN, just about everybody picked Carolina. Well, just about everybody on 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 ESPN is an ACC uh, graduate. Right, that's true. I mean, you didn't see many Big East people in the, doing college college basketball. Probably because the Big East is no longer a, an ESPN property. So what you're saying is I'll have to have you back on when college football kicks back up again in the fall. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> well, if anything else, we could talk about uh, some of the prospects we got coming up for next year's college basketball season because I'm sure that's going to be keeping you busy for these warmer months coming up. I think it'll be fun. All right, sir. Thank you so much for your time. I greatly My appreciate pleasure. it. Your insight was outstanding, and I hope people learned a thing or two from listening to you. Okay. Best of luck with the project. That's going to do it for The Bridge. Now, normally... My loyal listeners know how I usually close this program by telling you where you can find previous episodes of The Bridge over at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You could also follow me on Twitter under that same handle at London Bridge, and you could subscribe to The Bridge on iTunes by searching for it there or finding that information on my website as well. 
I also usually tell you what I plan to talk about on the next installment of The Bridge, which will probably focus on some baseball. Maybe we'll get into some NBA since that's slowly winding down as well, or we can just leave it open to whatever excitement is going on. But this week, I wanted to do something a little bit different. I was unable to do a show last week because my grandmother passed away at 95 years old on Holy Saturday. So things, of course, were a little busy that week with the service and work and the funeral. And fortunately, I had the honor of being able to write her obituary and also give a small eulogy at her funeral service. So I'm honored to have the opportunity to have been able to do that. And one of the many incredible things about my grandmother, who lived an incredibly fulfilling life, was that she was my number one fan for many of the things that I do. Whether that was an article in the newspaper, or a radio show in college, or making the high honor roll, she was proud in whatever I was able to do. And because of her age, she obviously was not up in the technology age of things as far as having a smartphone or a laptop or any way to hear any of my podcasts just because she didn't have access to those sorts of electronics or media. But now she's got a much better seat to keep track of what I've been doing. So because of that, I wanted to dedicate this podcast to her and leave you all with a little something to remember her by. So instead of closing with my usual exit song and spiel, I thought I would do this instead, as I'm sure that this time around, she's definitely listening. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. And I'm wondering why, for it never should be there at all. With such power in your smile, sure as dawn you'll beguile, so there's never a teardrop should fall. When your sweet lilting laughter lies some fairy song, and your eyes twinkle bright as can be, you should laugh all the while and all other times smile and now smile a smile for me when i realize that smiling sure it's like a morning spring in the little of irish laughter Yeah.